Are we alone in the universe or do aliens exist? The Catholic Church today and throughout history has something to say about this. And what famous and incredible saint stated, the Lord certainly did not limit his glory to this small earth. On other planets, other beings exist who did not sin and fall as we did. But what does this mean for us as men being created in the Imago Dei or the image of God? We go into this and a lot more on today's show. Stay with us. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Uh, I am joined by my co-host John Heinen, and I'm, my name is Sam Guzman. And uh, today we have an awesome topic. Uh, actually, I don't know if it's awesome, but it's definitely unique, uh, definitely different. We're going to be talking about extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, something that's kind of been in the news a lot lately. And uh, we have with us uh, someone who just wrote a book about this topic uh, and what the Catholic Church has to say about extraterrestrial intelligence, and that's uh, that's Dr. Paul Thigpen. Um and he is well known to many of you due to his many books, but I'll briefly introduce him. Uh, he has a BA in Religious Studies from Yale University and a master's degree and a PhD uh, in Historical Theology from Emory University. Um, and he served on the faculty of multiple universities, and he is a best-selling author and award-winning winning journalist, and he frequently gives talks at parishes and conferences. Uh, he's pretty much everywhere, so you've probably heard of him. Uh, Dr. Paul Thigma, thank you for being with us. Great to be here, Sam and John. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so we're really excited about talking about this. Uh, it's so timely and relevant. Um you know, there's been there's been uh, this UFO stuff going on for for decades now, and it just seems to be heating up. You know, with the with congressional hearings happening about it, and all these documents being released, and and pretty much everybody's uh, at least aware of the fact that that this that there's these unconfirmed you know uh, uh, UFOs, and and there's different names for them now. Um, but, uh, but we really wanted a Catholic perspective on this topic because uh, the church does have something to say about it and the saints do have something to say about it. So so before we get there, though, what got you interested in this and what uh, really inspired you to write a book about this topic? Well, Sam, it's something I've uh, been interested in since childhood. And uh, when I became a Christian at the, the age of 18, I've been an atheist before that is for six years. Um, thought, how, how does my faith, how would my faith accommodate this if these things are real? And um, so, you know, given thought for many years, and when I became Catholic, I said, okay, now how would my Catholic faith accommodate this? And oh, it was probably by now eight or nine years ago that um, the publisher of Tan Books, who's the publisher of this book, uh, Connor Gallagher, a dear friend, and I were walking along the beach at an editorial retreat at Merle Beach. And I don't know, I saw a light in the sky or something and said, Connor, you may think I need a tinfoil hat, but I've been wanting to write a book about extraterrestrial intelligence and the Catholic faith. He said, write it. I'll publish it. Well, it was all those years ago. I didn't have much time. I was in the middle of other things. But he gave me the confidence that somebody would publish it. And uh, 
And so then, gosh, this is a couple of years ago now, 2019, I get word from a friend of mine who's a, a Catholic journalist with an interest in the subject that she's in touch with a reporter of the New York Times who's told her that he's going to be publishing an article they are going to at some point uh, soon, and, and they did, um, talking about the, the secret agency that the government has had and denied for years to study uh, other than UFOs, they call them now UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Okay. And uh, and it includes, you know, folks talking about retrieve, uh, retrieve material from crashed UFOs. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, this is really wild. So it did come out that summer, 2019, but it did, hardly made a ripple because it was right at the height of uh, the rioting that was going mm -hmm. on in cities and the COVID stuff. And so everybody was so preoccupied with certain terrestrial issues that uh, most people missed it. But only you know since then, as, as Sam was alluding to, lots of things have continued to kind of come out from respectable news media and uh, the government itself making some admissions, uh, some fine journalists working on it, uh, both both here in this country and and one in Australia that I particularly like. And so it seemed like uh, in 2019, when I found about that, I said, okay, Connor, you know, the publisher, I'm, I need to start working on this. I was still working on other things. Uh, so it took me a couple of years because it's probably the most substantial work I've done since my doctoral dissertation. Wow. But, um, so anyway, and then the timing kind of worked out. The, I thought that all the stuff was going to come out with Congress before the book came out. And the book was taking a long time. But, you know, as, as the Lord would have it, about the time the book came out, June, we had just had hearings in Congress in May, and there will be more soon. So I think the timing's right. The book's not about UFOs, but uh, UFOs are closely related. I ended up doing an appendix at the end about that. But it's more about uh, if we should you know, encounter or discover or have a disclosure of the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, would that disprove the Christian faith? Hmm. Um, because there are many, many adversaries of ours who for centuries have actually said that. And you know, my answer is no, not at all. And so it's a look at, at that question. It's in some ways an apologetic sport. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And I appreciate you kind of sharing uh, my first question as well, which was, yeah, well, why enter into this other than, you know, sort of a um, childish fascination and curiosity. So I appreciate you sharing that. I do want to ask you just kind of leading on that is, is what does we as men have to have as foundational conditions for entering into this, uh, you know, conversation? As much as it is an apologetic book, as you just stated, uh, it's incredibly informative. I don't know how many hundreds of citations you have in the book, but you you lay some groundwork as as I think is really important for men to be aware of and informed when approaching this topic. Because as I started dropping the hints to people around me that I was going to have this interview today, I got uh, people who immediately said not interested, don't believe in them. I had people who, you know, uh, do strongly believe in them, uh, you know, kind of like all over the place, but everybody has already sided with their uh, opinion. So I'd love to hear you kind of lay that foundation for us. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question. I, one of the themes of the book is, is humility. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just something we have to keep in mind. Uh, rather than coming to it and saying we already have it figured out. I certainly didn't come to it saying we already have figured out, had the interest. Um, and I learned you know, so many things. I'm, my, my field is historical theology, so how Christian doctrine and teaching has developed Christian thought uh, over, over the centuries. And so that's how I approached the first part of it, because I realized that, I uh, came to realize 
what I didn't realize that uh, this is a conversation that's been going on in the Christian community and the Catholic Church all the way back to the beginning, mm-hmm. and before that in in the pagan Roman and Greek circles, and um, and to try to talk about the subject, the possibility of it, how it fits in our theology, without looking at the history of the historical conversation, is uh, is is a problem because uh, I don't know. Think about you go to a party and it's been in in progress for an hour. You come late and you walk up to a group that's having a lively conversation and you you go up and you you want to start talking about the conversation and you make a point and they say, oh, well, he just said that 10 minutes ago. He said, (laughs) well, how about this? And they said, well, no, they already we already figured out that's not true 10 minutes ago. And and you realize (laughs) I I better not say anything unless I know the conversation. (laughs) So that's that's what I've done. The first part of the book kind of takes us back all the way to pre-Christian times, but then to the church fathers, to the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, uh, the centuries since then, and looks at uh, how how Christian thinkers, and particularly Catholic thinkers, have, have dealt with this issue. And one of the things that does right away is to help us see that our current sense, of, you know, a lot of people, including the media, that this is a silly topic or not a serious topic that we need tinfoil hats if we're interested in. But that's a that's an historical anomaly itself. It's mm. a, it's an exception that, for except for now, all the all the centuries, uh, going back twenty five, almost twenty six centuries, the best minds of Western thought, including Catholic minds, have taken this issue very seriously. Even if they came to different conclusions about it, taking it very seriously. Um, Saint Albert the Great, you know, I have a wonderful quote in there where he just says, "It's a marvelous thing to think about other worlds and that kind of thing." So, of course, we should be interested in it. But uh, there are historical reasons we could go into that, you know, maybe in a minute. But uh, why our generation has come to think of it as, as something silly and to be dismissed, it actually involves the U.S. government's uh, work to make that happen. But, mm. um, but it's uh, anyway. So part of what that does is it kind of freezes up to say, "No." If, if you know someone like Padre Pio or, or someone like St. Albert the Great or some other folks, St. John Chrysostom can talk about the possibility of other worlds and, and other races uh, that are intelligent, so can we. And there's nothing silly about it. And in fact, what I found is I, the more I delved into it, the deeper I began to understand my faith. It, it made me revisit topics I hadn't looked at deeply since my graduate program many years ago about uh, the nature of Christ, the nature of salvation, and the, what the image of God, as you mentioned. So um, it's a very it's a very powerful conversation that's gone on, and, and one that I think is relevant in many ways. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, that, I mean, that leads to a, a, a great follow-up question is, what did they say? I mean, what did they, what were the conclusions of some of these great minds? I mean, I know you it's probably a lot to to cover simply because it is a lot cited in the book but but just some highlights of what were some of the opinions of these great thinkers yeah so if uh if you start you know just to give a big overview you start with the the ancient greek philosophers um you have folks like democritus uh who is um uh is the one who actually gave us first the the notion of atoms and he was looking at cosmology and how things come about, how things are made, uh, who believe that, uh, sure, there are multiple universes. And this is something we have to consider that in that conversation, early on in the conversation, the Greek word cosmos that we have as cosmos uh, could mean just world like our, our planet Earth, or it could mean everything that is kind of materially the universe. 
And uh, so the early question was, could there be more than one cosmos? And they tended to, to think of it as universes. And, um, and so Democritus said, well, yeah, I think there's an infinite number and there are probably inhabitants in all of them. You had folks like Plato and Aristotle, which you know, your viewers will probably recognize, who um, did not think that, but it's kind of for philosophical reasons. Um, they had the sense that um, because of their notion that there are four elements and Earth is the heaviest and that all the elements kind of go to their proper places and all the Earth comes to one place. So, and that's the center of the universe, kind of gravity brings it all in. And so the earth is the center of the universe. There can't even be any other kind of planet anywhere. I mean, that, that's how limited their science was. And, and we're the center of the universe. And um, if there was one maker as, as Plato thought and, and also as Aristotle thought, then it would be less than perfect for him to make more than one world. It, you know, to us that kind of sounds, I don't know how that follows, but, uh, and then their, their thought did, have lots of influence eventually, especially through St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. But the early church fathers, they knew these debates, they talked about uh, some of the stuff. Um, you have some early writers saying, yeah, he can make all kinds of worlds and inhabited species. Others who said, well, he could, but but he's only made this one. And that was usually under the, the influence of Plato and Aristotle. And uh, But by the time, finally, late Middle Ages, people began to break out of the limits of Aristotelian science, of the science that Aristotle had taught, that the Earth is the center of one single universe, and that's all it can be. Um, they began to say, no, there could be other possibilities. Of, and, uh, and especially, I mean, even Aristotle himself had had this, that the moon could be inhabited, uh, even though it kind of was contrary to some other thoughts he had. Plato um, believed that the stars were actually animated, that they were alive, that they had souls. The demiurge, as he called it, the creator had given a soul to each one of the of the stars out there. And so in that sense, he believed in extraterrestrial life. But you finally, by the time you finally begin to get to people breaking free of Aristotle's science, as it had been brought brought in by Thomas Aquinas and others, and I love St. Thomas, it's not, not anything against him. Um, they began to say, yeah, there really are other possibilities. And even during the time of Thomas and, and others, you had church voices coming back and saying, now, you may think there's only one, but don't you dare say that God could not make more than one. Um, mm. He's all powerful. And that's always been one of the things pushing against folks who would say, oh, no, only one, only one. They say, well, you may think there's only one, but don't say that God couldn't make other worlds because he's all powerful. And so that's uh, that and the notion that there's a plenitude, a fullness of what God has done. And the way he fills life here, why wouldn't he fill the universe with other, other worlds and, and lives? So by the time of Galileo, of course, and you know all that that went on there, we could go into that, but that's another story. And they begin, people began to realize, including Jesuit astronomers and others, that there's a whole lot of space out there, and there are actually planets out there, you know, stars that probably have their own planets. Then the possibilities began to open up, and people said, "Well, why? Why couldn't we? Why couldn't there be more? Couldn't God so creative, so powerful? Why couldn't He have done that?" And then you get into other questions once you do that about, okay, how was the relationship of Christ's incarnation on earth to that? Or could it be? And are they fallen or unfallen? As we said, Padre Pio, St. Pio uh, believed that there was some that were unfallen. And uh, if so, are they redeemed? You get into all kinds of questions. But the main point is that um, 
that there sure seems to be room within Catholic thought for all that. And the church, though, Catholic leaders have had things to say, including the, some of the saints. Uh, the church has never defined that. It's like they've always left it to, to science. Well, let's see you know, what we learn. It's interesting to me that um, before Vatican II, there was a survey sent out to the bishops of the world um, to ask what kinds of questions bishops might want the council to address. And apparently, um, the Cardinal Bishop of, of Washington, D.C. said, uh, I think we need to address, because the beginning of the space age, you know, I think we need to address whether there's life in other, intelligent life in other planets. Obviously, the church fathers didn't. So my guess is that they were doing what earlier generations have done and said, God hasn't shown anything to us about it, so there's not much we can say. Let's, let's see what science says. But they certainly didn't come out and, and make a statement that, oh, no, there's no such thing. Yeah, and so we we have this very, and you do such an incredible job in your book, and you bring it out, and we're going to put this book in the show notes and everything, so you can you can grab it. Um, but you do such a great job of expanding the church history and all of these conversations from philosophers, even you go into Protestants and what they've stated and things of that nature. So how did we get to where we are today? Where I, I'm going to be honest, myself included, going through your book. Um, there are a lot of greatness. And I would say that one of the big things is, is deepening my understanding of the Catholic faith, right? Because the more we reflect on these possibilities, um, the more we start to appreciate things like the Imago Dei or our own redemption as man or the Our Lady's relationship to Christ. But how did we get, before we talk about all those things, how did we get to where we are today where basically the average common individual isn't aware that the church has spoken of these things and their knowledge of aliens is limited to, um, you know, close encounters of a third kind, men in black, you know, Independence Day, and you know, these different alien movies. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that from you. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So St. John uh, Newman, you know, who's uh, yeah. just recently fully canonized, British convert and brilliant man, of course, had a lot of uh, lot to do with my own conversion. Uh, becoming Catholic, but um, he made the statement at one point that, that's, I think, very telling that in the time he was writing, so the end of the 1800s, the end of the 19th century, he said basically, the, you know, it is such a, it, it's, it seems to be almost absolute universal that everybody believes in intelligent races and other planets, and in, in most elite circles, for you to question that is blasphemy, is treated like blasphemy. Now, he wasn't saying huh. the church was doing that. But that's what was the, the common idea. By that time, it was everybody. And you look at all the writers, they're all saying, of course there are. Let's talk about the possibilities. Um, one, one thing that began to push back on it some was with the coming of Darwin and his teaching about, about evolution. And as they, people began to understand and think about that, um, you had a stream kind of within science saying uh, all the conditions on Earth that came about to make it possible for life and then life to evolve into intelligence. Um, we're not so sure you can find that anywhere else. It may very well be, we're the only ones that are alone. And so what you begin to have is within, within the field of science itself, the, the guys who were the biologists started pushing for no, no, rare, or maybe we're the only ones. But at the same time, you had the guys who were the astronomers, the cosmologists looking at the big picture saying, no, no, look at all the possibilities. There are billions, there are trillions of stars out there. Of course, of course it's possible. But uh, well, really, so, so the, by the time of the 60s, you know, I have, I have some of the folks I quote saying that 
um, in the academy, you just wouldn't even dare mention that you want to talk about this. And it was, it was poo pooed. And, and only later did people begin to say, you know, like one, one did, oh no, life is a cosmic comparative, it'll be everywhere. So what, what helped to push things that way? And uh, we have to look at some political history there. Um, and this is where it does touch on the subject of UFOs, that uh, starting in World War II, there began to be a, a number of sightings of things that could not be explained in the skies. Uh, in, in the Second World War, both allied pilots, military pilots, and the Axis pilots were beginning to see these bright things that would come all around them and fly next to them that they couldn't explain. They thought it was hmm. each side thought it was some high technology of the other side. So oh. the Allies thought the Nazis had developed it. The Nazis thought we had developed it. After the war, everybody finds out, no, none of us made it. <laughs> Where did they come from? <laughs> they even nicknamed them Foo Fighters. And, uh, <laughs> and so they had a name for it. And then immediately after the war was over, starting in 1947, all kinds of things. You, most of your viewers have probably heard of Roswell, and, but there were others that came about. All yeah. kinds of stories and things coming up. And uh, keep in mind, this is this is the Cold War. It's right after World War II. And we now have um, documents uncovered by the Freedom of Information Act recovered that show very clearly that both the Pentagon and the CIA made conscious decisions that um, in the in the interest of national security, uh, we we don't want it to look like we don't have control of the skies, number one. And number two, the Soviets could take advantage of this because every time there was a flap, and there was a, there was a big one over Washington, D.C., there was a big one over Los Angeles, where they were sending out jet fighters and people, you know, people seeing all these things flying over. Um, when that would happen, then all of a sudden, all the phone, um, the call-in, you know, the people handling phone calls would be swamped because everybody's seeing it. And they said, this would be a great time for them, the Soviets, to send something actually over a bomb or something, and, and we'd be caught off guard. So whatever the reasoning was, they... Um, they made an intentional decision. We are going to deny this. We're going to try to cover it up. Uh, I know it sounds like conspiracy theory, but we've got the documentation now for it. Um, and not only that, that they were going to uh, do their best to make sure that the media, entertainment and news media went along with it mm. to, uh, to hold up to, to uh, mockery and ridicule anyone who even wanted to talk about this. They were successful. Uh, but that's coming to an end. Uh, the, the government in, has has admitted that, yeah, there are things out there that we can't explain. And uh, they don't seem to be Russian or Chinese, and they're definitely not ours. Um, there's certain, they call them the five observables things that uh, make it look like they're not following the laws of physics as we know them. Uh, there's a lot more that the you know, Pentagon knows that they're not telling, but um, Congress is about to have some more hearings, and uh, they're probably some whistleblowers going to come forward. That's, that's the information that I have. Mm. So if that happens, and if we, you know, if the government actually finally say, yep, they're out there, they're intelligent, and they're not us, I don't want Catholics or the Christians to, to think, oh my gosh, what does that do to my faith? It's not in the Bible. How do I handle that? And, and there will be people, there are people out there, as there have been for a couple hundred years, saying, see, this disproves your faith. It's not in your Bible. And uh, your salvation, you, you think that you have a special relationship with God. Well, look, he might have all these other millions of races. So that makes you not so special. Mm. But that's that's not at all the case. It's not at all the case. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because a lot of the interest in 
uh, extraterrestrials came about right around the time as like this this uh, atom bomb was dropped and we we're like in this new scientific age and it's like it's almost like a a new mythology almost emerging around this um but 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 i hear a lot of christians say like just being so dismissive like this is just demonic activity if if it is real and if it isn't real it's just complete fake um hoaxes and so many things and so so what would you say to somebody who's like who says you know that the, the this is demonic activity or you know maybe not even evil spirits but maybe it's just spiritual it's just uh, like angels or, or something but it's it's certainly not creatures from this this world as we or this universe as we know it you know it's from other dimensions but um what would you say to someone who's who, who uh either wants to dismiss it or just explain it as kind of spiritual entities yeah you know i'd say that first of all that i agree with them to the extent that there are certain cases, especially of the so-called alien abductions, that sure have a lot of parallels to the church's classic accounts of demonic encounters. Um, even secular observers have noticed that, say, hey, this sounds like some of the stuff I've read in medieval literature about people encountering demons. And um, so you have cases where someone is uh, abducted against their will, or this is the claim, they're abducted against their will, um, they're sexually assaulted, uh, or even <clears throat> they have some revelation from the creatures that are talking to them that all the religions are wrong and this is a new religion that, that is true. And boy, we have plenty of parallels with that you know, in church history. And I think, and, and then especially because there's some Christians who have claimed that they were having this experience and when they said something like, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop, that it stopped. And cases like that, I think, yeah, that's probably, that's probably demonic. But that's a small group of the cases. Um, and there's a whole lot more with this that is, doesn't fit that profile at all. Um, and especially if, as you know, wow, I mean, it was in the New York Times article, and we've got people openly saying, yeah, we've got retrieved crash material. Hmm. Um, it's going to kind of nuts and bolts stuff. It's made of material that we can't, and, and I think that's going to eventually come out. It's probably been turned over to the private aerospace industry for study and to try to reverse engineer. And that's, you know, I think the evidence is piling up for that. But if that's the case, how are you gonna say that that was demonic? Something that's been around for years, that's hard physical, that people have touched and examined the chemical uh, stuff up. It's one thing to say, all right, you see a light in the sky, maybe that's an angel or a demon. Okay, yep, yeah, could be. Um, but if you're gonna have that kind of stuff, why, why would demons be flying around a ship? They don't. They don't, you know, they're not even, they don't even have bodies. Um, so this, I would just say, don't paint with a broad brush the whole thing with hundreds of thousands of testimonies of, of things um, that have to do with, with stuff we can't explain. Don't paint that all as demonic, especially when it doesn't fit, fit the profile at all, where it doesn't seem to be malicious. It's not trying to, to convince us of another religion. It's not hurting us in any way. Um, and I think probably there's a lot of stuff going on that, that ETI, extraterrestrial intelligences, may account for some of it, but not for all of it. So some of it may be demonic. Some of it may be people may be seeing angels flying. Um, some of it, this is, you know, probably kind of controversial part. It's the last part of the book on where I do just briefly address UFOs, is the notion that it could be ultra-terrestrials. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah. That it could actually be um, non-intelligent, non-human intelligences that share our earth with us and that have been here for a long time. And there's plenty of evidence that maybe suggests that's the case. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, the kinds of things that the ancients would have called um, centaurs, um, satyrs, the Greeks would have called them. Um, the other folks would have called leprechauns or fairy people, you know, that kind of thing. Even maybe the phenomenon of poltergeist and all those people hear that and they just freeze up and say, no, no, we can't. Yeah. But the yeah. truth is Christians, uh, St. Augustine and St. Jerome both believed in centaurs and satyrs. They talked about it. They thought that they were real, real non-human intelligence. They, they believed in a form of ultra terrestrials. Um, We've had others, uh, there's an exorcist, uh, Sinistrade, who wrote about the year 1700 and how there are a lot of things that demonic powers they would encounter and overcome in exorcisms, but there were these other things out there that weren't demonic at all. You have uh, Father Herbert Thurston, uh, early 1900s, looking through all these cases from Europe of poltergeist activity. And a lot of it you know, turned out to be demonic. They bring in the exorcist and the sacraments, and the sacramentals and the prayers and stuff conquers the thing. But others, it doesn't touch them. It doesn't do anything. And they said, but they're demons. They've got to submit it you know, sooner or later. And instead, there's something that's intelligent that's acting kind of like naughty little children doing <laughs> prankster stuff. So I know that sounds wild. And I only bring it up at the end. It's not the main part of the book. The main part of the book, if, if every UFO or no UFO was proven to be um extraterrestrial, the book would still stand. The point of it would be that we can accommodate that if it should be the truth. And that the church has for a long time accommodated, or at least Catholic thinkers have for a long time accommodated it and talked about ways in which um, it would just be the creativity of God and, and showing his, his diversity. Yeah. Well, you piqued my curiosity and uh, that part of me wants to continue down on this path, but I'm going to shift us towards the more core of the book in that Christian Catholic apologetics. And, and I just want to start by, um, again, reaffirming, as I did earlier, that this book is excellent for helping us to truly dive into some of the depths of, um, in a very practical way, of church uh, teachings, you know, Catholic theology and, and our understanding of creation and everything like that. So I kind of want to start there, and I want to start with you and say, you know, how do you respond to if aliens or extraterrestrial intelligence existed, what would that mean for us being created in the Imago Dei? What would that mean for us being created in the image of God? Um, and I know we'll have to define what we mean by that, but I'd really like to hear it from you because you go into this in such a great way in your book. Thank you. It's, uh, I mean, first we have to define image of God. And for a lot of folks, I even know for myself, I tended to just say, okay, it's, it's a rational intellect and a free will. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've been, you know, and uh, the more I realized, you know, thought about that, the more I realized uh, we really do need to add another aspect to that, uh, and that is that our soul is immortal, that our spirit is immortal, um, <clears throat> in part because you start looking at, you know, what they're finding out about Neanderthals on this planet, for instance, is that they really did seem to have some evidence of rational intellect and free will, yeah. but we know that the humans are the only, the only ones on this planet made in the image of God, and that they were more like the animals. With a, if, if they had a soul like that, it, it wasn't destined for eternity. They weren't made for the beatific vision as we are. So immort immortality is an important part. I think it's in the, uh, the book of uh, Sirach that um, 
where it talks about how he's he's made us immortal. It's, it's part of his image. Um, don't have the numbers in front of me, but so that that's an important thing to to realize then that if that's the image of God, rational intellect, um, free will, and and the soul that it possesses, that the race possesses, is immortal and intended, you know, to to live forever and with Him in joy. Then the question becomes: Okay, uh, could that could another race some characteristic they may be different from us because image of god doesn't really mean you know that you have hair and beard and <laughs> stuff like that unfortunately um, but you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> although saint thomas would talk about how you know the fact that we have an hand actually is in his image in the sense that god has active power and you oh, act yeah. with your hand and so it's like that but you can say that you know about other forms physical yeah, forms sure. as well so the question is would he would he do that or could he do that um, in other places. And of course, again, the course, the, the answer has to be, well, of course he could, um, but has he? And then what you get into is uh, people, a concern, and you know, some have raised this for centuries that, well, wait a minute, our faith teaches that we have a special relationship with God. And that would take away from our specialness, wouldn't it? If, what if there were thousands, millions of other intelligent species out there somehow made in the image of God as well? Um, so the first question that kind of raises is, doesn't that affect our specialness? Our response to that is, uh, you know, to think about what St. Augustine once said, that uh, he said, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us. And he loves all of us as he loves each one of us. And any any parent of more than one child understands exactly what he means. Your first child's born, you think, oh, I'm in love. How can I love this child any more yeah. than I do? And then the second child comes along and it doesn't divide your love. It doesn't diminish your love. You love the second one the same way. And you, you love each of them as if there were only one of them. Your love is multiplied. God who is love himself, um, infinite love, his love for us isn't diminished if he has other, other children out there. Um, so that's you know one, one way to kind of respond to that. Um, others who say, well, it's not in the Bible, so it can't be. But, well, you know, dinosaurs and duckbill platypuses and molecules and microbes are not in the Bible either. It's not intended to be. We know they exist. Not intended to be a, uh, a complete textbook in science that way. Um, so it did. Yeah, I think, yes, it is. It certainly is possible for him to have other intelligent species and to, and to love them dearly. And if that's possible, then a good part of what the second part of the book is about is saying, OK, what are the possibilities? And is there anything in scripture or catechism that would, would rule them out? Um, I should say too that you know there's some passages in scripture and catechism that will will talk about you know man you put all things under his feet and given him dominion and so some folks will say that means so we're the only ones in the universe, but then you look at the, in context the rest of what it says and it says all animals and he talks about all the lower animals and inanimate things and so still just talking about the earth. You have some passages that talk about um, that, you know, for instance, the, 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 the cosmos is longing uh, for the sons of God and talking about the ones on earth that come into their own. Um, and, and that could still be possible even with others because each one of those races would have to play their own part in the great cosmic drama of salvation. Um, so anyway, every passage that I think has been, been raised either in scripture or, or catechism uh, I've dealt with in the book. I think, you know, here's another way to, to explain it. And sometimes the word all will be used and it sounds like it's an absolute all. And I even had one, you know, one Thomas, who's a friend of mine say, and, and in this context, 
seems to me to say you're only talking about all on earth would be um, kind of special pleading or something. But but actually, I go back and see that that's how St. Thomas Aquinas said, you know, understood the passage, as did other, some of the church fathers, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you always have to be careful with all. When you say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, well, does that include Jesus? <laughs> does that include Mary? Right. Um, yeah. So questions like that. But I, th- I think it's it's possible to deal with it in a reasonable way. And I never say in the book, it is this way. We've got, we definitely have all those others. But to say, it certainly could be. And if it is, it doesn't undermine our faith. It will enrich it. We'll have plenty of questions to ask if we actually encounter species out there to, to find out what is what is their understanding of God. Are they fallen or not fallen? If they have fallen, has God acted on, uh, on their behalf to redeem them with a plan? St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, when he, he dealt with the question of, did God have to redeem us the way he did? Mm. His, his answer was no. He could have done it. He's God. He could do it another way. But this is what was fitting you know, for us. And so you take that on a bigger scale and say, okay, he didn't, he wouldn't have to redeem them the way he redeems us. St. Thomas even said um, in the issue about the issue of multiple incarnations, what if the one the son of God were to choose to be incarnate on another planet? And Thomas wasn't talking about another planet, but he set up the principle. He said, again, God is God. The son of God could have taken uh, on more than one human nature and it would not contradict anything in him. And I, I think the principle is the same for other species. He could take on another nature. He wouldn't, would there not be then two lords, two, two saviors, uh, two sons of God. It would only be one son of God who has taken on two natures. And to understand that, you have to look some of the early Christological controversies to, to realize that the kind of false notion which still pops up today that, that what God did is take a man, Jesus, and join himself to it so that there were two persons there. Uh, that that's not true. It's one person, yeah. the eternal son of God, who took on everything that was human. Thomas says he could do that again. Not not, a, not that he would on earth, but it's possible for him to do that again without any inherent contradiction. Hmm. The, this rich tradition of our church, like, is really thought through almost every question. Haven't they? <laughs> and, uh, there, but there is this, I'd like you to say something too, like about this, this kind of this curiosity um, that these great thinkers had and, but also their openness to engage with these questions without fear. And I just noticed like you, you've been saying, and, and I think we've all encountered this to some extent, but, but people who are afraid to engage with these questions, they think somehow it's, it's um, undermining the faith or threatening the faith or um, not pertinent to salvation, therefore it doesn't matter. Um, what would you say to someone who says like, well, this is either dangerous or uh, irrelevant um, and therefore you shouldn't even be wasting your time with this? You know, and, and how would you respond to someone who's, who's kind of taking that approach? Well, let me, I'll, I would start with that quote I mentioned from St. Albert the Great. And he was the mentor yeah. of St. Thomas Aquinas, of course. Get my glasses here. So he's writing, since one of the most wondrous and noble questions about nature is whether there is one world or many, a question that the human mind desires to understand per se, just in itself, it seems desirable for us to inquire about it. And I think that's a a beautiful attitude and has been the attitude of so many, because he was a scientist, I dedicated the book to him, he's a scientist as well as as a theologian, Uh, that the attitude is, okay, this is Let's think about this. There's there's something rich and wonderful about this, and um, 
And I found that as I was as I was looking at it, the, I began to understand my own faith deeper, notions like image of the image of God and, and the incarnation and going back to the, the foundations of faith. And so, first of all, it, it really is a beautiful, powerful thing that can stretch our minds. It also begins to, um, it increases your sense of wonder at God and his creation to realize these things could be possible. Um, it gives a whole new sense to the word omnipotent <laughs> mm-hmm. and the creativity of God. You begin to see God much more broadly. That Oh, my goodness, he could do that. Uh, something I hadn't even thought of before. Uh, for folks who would say it's it's not relevant. I'd say, okay, for your life right now, it, it may not seem relevant, but if in the next few years, because um, it's not just the government, but it's also scientists are finally waking up to this and saying, all right, we're going to do our own studies, Galileo Project with uh, Avi Loeb um, at, at Harvard. We're going to start looking for the, the evidence ourselves without depending on the government. Um, if it happens, it's going to be really relevant. You know, It's going to be really relevant because there will be It'll be in the news, it'll be in the media, but it'll be people saying, your faith is is, is is ridiculous. It can't accommodate this. And it, it, it's going to be very relevant to be able to say, no, that's not true, and here's why. Um, so I'm, I hope I'm getting to the whole of your question there, Sam, but those would be the reasons why it's, and, and definitely not not dangerous if we if we're grounded in the faith. And I will admit, and you know, I think everyone always should, that there are lots of folks who are addressing this who are kind of more in the new age you know, way of thinking, mm-hmm. other kinds of stuff. And you have people like uh, Emmanuel Swedenborg, who centuries ago, um, and he started the whole movement, you know, claimed that he was having these encounters with beings out there on other planets. And um, although Anne Catherine Emmerich, let's say Anne Catherine Emmerich, uh, saw life out there as well, which is interesting in her vision. But um, so, so, yes, you have to make sure you're not being drawn into the other stuff. But if you're well grounded in your faith, and I hope this book could help you be better grounded in your faith in this regard, you'd be able to take your stand and say, "No, you can't. You can't say the Catholic churches you know can't accommodate this. You can't say that our faith can't accommodate it. Let's let's talk about it. it's uh, it's not at all dangerous uh, unless as long as you're grounded and as long as you recognize this that the other stuff out there is um, is coming from another direction. The interesting thing is that I think there are evangelistic possibilities here as well. I've been sending the book to some folks that I hope might be able to, who, as far as I know, are either not Catholic or not practicing Catholic, but are very interested in these things and, and believe that they sure seem to be evidence for them as a way of being able to say, you know, um, I think you're right. That these things could be real. And here's how the Catholic Church and Catholic teaching could help explain them, put it in a framework. And uh, and so I think it's it's great. What you're finding is you're finding lots of folks who um, have been trained in the materialist worldview that um, there's only matter and energy, a kind mm-hmm. of false science, a scientism, no God, no no spirit, no, nothing, which I actually held to that for six years as a teenager. And then what's happening is, as it happened to me, in this, when they start to study this, they start bumping up against things that they can't explain, that science can't explain. Um, our laws of physics can explain some of the things going on in the skies that happen pretty often. Like according to one Navy pilot, happened has been happening every day for for years that they've observed these things doing things that we can't understand. Now it doesn't mean that those things are spiritual, but what it's happening is it's it's getting people to think more about maybe science doesn't have all the answers, and it's getting to think about the nature of consciousness. You read that a lot, and again, you have to be careful you don't go in a kind of new agey kind of direction, but. 
people come to the conclusion that, you know, those scientists that say that consciousness is a, an epiphenomenon of the brain, that somehow the physical brain is able to give rise to consciousness. No, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. It's almost as if there's a consciousness that underlies the material world that gives rise to it. I'm saying, you know, you're getting very close to the mm. idea of God. Or they'll say, you know, look at quantum mechanics and look, there could be a particle that could be in two places at once. Isn't that amazing? And it's it's beyond everything. I say, yeah, well, you know, talk to Catholics about bilocation of the saints. <laughs> They're talking about entire human beings who are in two places at once. And, uh, you know, not, not trying to put it down or anything, but I'm just saying, to help them understand that the Catholic Church has always had this much broader view of things than a limited scientism that says if science can't explain it, understand it, it's not true, it doesn't exist. And to help begin to open up their minds to, yeah, this, there's a lot of stuff that is, is never dreamt of. And I want to say that sometimes to some scientists who are now beginning to say, hmm, there does seem to be things out there we don't understand. Yeah. And humility comes with that. You know, if, if they'll let it, humility can come with that. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, and I think um, some of the topics that you brought up, I mean, like, I guess you mentioned Blessed Anne Catherine Emmett, and we've mentioned Padre Pio, both of them mystics in their own right, and Padre Pio, who had this ability, right, to to read hearts and to um, see demons and see uh, even saints or souls in purgatory and things like that. It does bring a very compelling thought process. For me, it did. When I mm-hmm. when I came across that quote that I uh, read early on in the teaser, um, that uh not only you know did it, are there other planets where beings exist but there are those that did not sin and fall as we did mm-hmm. and that whole thought process didn't even occur to me but then i did start thinking well what if human beings came into contact <laughs> with individuals that had never fallen like how would that how would that be what what sort of new uh, lord of the rings you know could we really come out with and so i'm curious to your thoughts on some of those things i, I find them very compelling and 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 again, fascinating to think about. And those things have been talked about for centuries, you know, as you saw in the book. Uh, the person who's probably done the most uh, writing about that is C.S. Lewis, of course, yes, who's yeah. not Catholic, but very close. And uh, for so many of us, he he helped me to, to come to, you know, basic Christian faith from out of atheism. But he, um, he, he writes a lot about it. And he just says, you know, God saved them from us if, <laughs> if right. we should encounter an unfallen race and that we would take their might be well, you know, might tend to take their uh, their simplicity that would come from holiness as as some kind of uh, stupidity that we could take advantage of, and, and maybe mm. could. And even in his science fiction fiction uh, science fiction trilogy, where he tries to work out some of the things he's written about in his nonfiction, um, he has a race that's, that's he has several races that are unfallen, and what happens when an earthling gets there who is fallen and quite demonic and, and what he you know tries to do but it, what it does give rise to it, an interesting thought that uh, that goes back several centuries that where people s- wondered okay why would god have put so much distance between the earth and, and other places that might mm-hmm. have it and and their response is it may very well be a quarantine <laughs> yeah practical <laughs> it could very well be, yeah <laughs> that it, we that maybe we're the only ones that fell and and God is saying, okay, we're keeping them in quarantine. They're staying in the dungeon here. You had, uh, you know, one one uh, German philosopher who had, had was always saying uh, he thought it was the, he was Christian, not Catholic, but uh, they thought God had made the best of all possible universes because that's what God would do because he he does the best. 
and he would have all these people like Voltaire and others come back and say, oh, how ridiculous, you know, look at all the evil in the world. This is terrible. It's not the best spot. How could it be the best possible universe? And and then when he wrote about like the place, he said, yeah, look at the distance. You know, what I really think is probably the case that we're the only ones that have fallen. And so oh. God has kept them from us. And actually, so it doesn't, it's, it's no points against the Christian faith to say how terrible, he, how much evil there is in this world. Um, and that it could be the best possible universe. And maybe we're the worst possible planet in the best possible <laughs> universe. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, you know, the image was like, you know, what if what goes on here? What if this is the only place where all this misery goes on in the universe? <laughs> and and in that case, he said, what you know, I, you know, our evil is is no more telling uh, argument against the goodness of God than what goes on in the dungeon. Uh, you know, underneath the jail somewhere in some little corner of a of a wonderful kingdom, that doesn't mm. that doesn't undo all the goodness that's so much greater. So anyway, that, yeah. that's one of the reasons I loved going back through the historical conversation. These these folks had such fascinating ideas that they would throw out. Some were kind of crazy, but I put those in there too, just to to see the kind of ferment, intellectual ferment that's gone on for for more than two millennia. Oh, thank you. I think the most important thing that I'm hearing you talk about is just this idea of humility. You know, you talk about G.K. Chesterton and how he would he'd always encourage us to see the world, even our world that we're so familiar with, as almost like an alien world, you know, where like, yeah. if we could just really see that, how much wonder, how much humility, how much praise and glory we would give to God. You know, and I think uh, in our modern scientific mindset, I think even a lot of Catholics have have fallen into kind of a secular view where um, you know, the, the only things like miracles are contained in, your, you know, maybe in your church, like on Sunday morning when during the mass, like, you know, there a miracle happens. But as soon as you walk out the door or in like a secular world where we understand everything scientifically and everything is is explainable and, you know, and this is what this is what uh, the facts are. And we kind of close our minds to these possibilities. But but actually, um, uh, I, I, I worry that it, it it kills our wonder, or kills our humility. Yeah. yeah. Kind of in the face of this mysterious universe that we do live in, um, and mysteries aren't a threat to the faith. They are. Um, they can they can bring more glory to God if we approach them with with a humble heart. So I guess for me, like one of my last questions would be, you know, this this idea of extraterrestrials, like. Have you ever, this is really a personal question, but have you ever had an experience, because I, I've been hearing more and more of the people like opening up as the conversation heats up, like they're kind of talking about their own experiences. And, and have you ever had any experience like that? Well, I've, I don't usually like to talk too much about it because that's, you know, that, not that it's too personal, but I don't want to, you know, take the attention away from the, the main point of the book. It's the but there was a time when I was in high school, uh, walking on the beach with some friends and um, we looked up in the sky and there were two large circular things going right, uh, red and green that uh, scared us pretty badly. We jumped in the car and drove back to my house, which is eight miles away on, a, on the neighboring island. We were on the, the islands of the Georgia coast where I grew up. And it kind of followed, they kind of followed us and then disappeared. Nothing beyond that. Uh, um, I did have a recurring dream when I was, was a kid that I didn't know at the time, but uh, is similar to the um, the first part of the common description of an abduction experience, but never went any further than I'm, I'm dreaming that I'm lying in bed and all of a sudden this kind of bluish green light comes down the sky 
it's cold, it paralyzes me. My brother lying next to me isn't waking up and then I would wake up. So that's kind of the prologue to a lot of abduction stories, but I'm not claiming I was abducted by any means. It was just a <laughs> recurring thing. And then years later, I find out, oh my gosh, that's, you know, it sounds like some of these abduction stories, but no, I don't think I was, but it was one more thing to kind of increase my interest in, in the thing. But no, certainly not. I mean, I've been hearing some stories too from people that much, boy, much, much more detailed, much more um, intriguing than anything I've ever seen. Wow. Oh, well, I really am grateful for, for all of this. So I want to give you one last opportunity to, you know, what do you hope men will understand, right? I know we've had a long conversation for men, and so I'm not trying to repeat any of that, but I really, what do you hope men will take away from by, by where can they get this book also? And, and what do you hope they'll take away from? Because I, I also know when we were bringing up the, the topics of demons, Sam and I have talked about it a lot, um, how there can be, um, and a disordinate fascination, you know, mm -hmm. with that. And there can be, um, you know, a curiosity that can keep us off track from what God's calling us to do in holiness. And so you who's written, I think, 60 books, right? Published books and, and, and hundreds of more articles and journals and things like that. I'd love for you to, you know, what do you hope to leave men with, um, you know, kind of parting thoughts? Yes, yes. Well, thanks. Uh, we've already mentioned one, humility. Um, and a sense of wonder that uh, it's it's easy for a man working hard in this world to you know just to support his family and stuff to kind of get closed in a little bit and and uh, not thinking beyond uh, too much. But uh, I like to define wonder as a sense of humility in the face of mystery. And mm -hmm. the more we, so I'd say for men, you need to have courage. Uh, there could be things coming up in the next few years that will frighten a lot of people. Be not afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Our God is in control. He's all powerful. Anything that's out there, he's created. And uh, and he loves us dearly. So I'd say uh, in this subject matter, be be humble, be courageous, be brave about it. Um, be be open-minded, which is also a good trait for men and women as well. And um, and let it let it grow your faith, because that's, a, that's another thing. Not only does it grow our humility, but the more we realize the possibilities, the more we realize that this God that we serve is, is marvelous. He's, he's wonderful. He's beyond what, what we can think. He can think, he can do more than anything we imagine, as St. Paul says. And let it uh, increase our faith in him that whatever is out there that science discovers, he's in control. He created it all. He, he loves his creatures. He loves us. And uh, yeah, just make, make, it a, make it an occasion for growing in faith and humility. Mm -hmm. No, thank you so very much. So where can men go to to find your book? And we'll drop it in the show notes. Yes, tanbooks.com online. So tanbooks is the publisher. And uh, they they also have an interview with me there as well. We've talked about maybe some different things from here. But uh, I'm, I'm really grateful that today that you've given me this chance to talk about it. And I um, appreciate all the ministry that you do through here and have done for a long time. And Sam and I have known each other, at least at a distance for some years. And it's a uh, good work. Good work, man. Thank you for doing what you're doing. So much needed. Yeah. A fascinating conversation. Uh, and the book is, is wonderful. So I highly encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah. So, Paul, thank you so very much. We're just grateful for you joining us and giving us your time and wisdom uh, here. We look forward to the next time where we can connect. Thank you, John. Thank you, Sam. God bless you and, and all your viewers. Amen. And as we like to end each of our episodes, be a man, be a saint.